Welcome to the Doctoral Mentoring Masterclass for faculty sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services. I'm Lee Stallander, the Associate Director of Faculty Research Training at Walden. If you're a Walden faculty member and would like credit for listening to this Masterclass podcast, please make a note of the code that will be given during the session and email it to me. I hope you enjoy the masterclass. Welcome everyone. It's so great to see everyone in the room today um, for our Walton University's eighth doctoral mentoring class. The masterclasses are designed to allow faculty who have been identified as exceptional mentors to share their experiences and insights with the mentoring community. Today's session will be mentoring research recruitment. The purpose of today's session is to develop a series of strategies for how to mentor students through research recruitment. Today on the line, we have Dr. Lee Statlander, who will be our moderator throughout the hour. We also have our panelists, Dr. Leilani Jillstadt, and she is with ORDS. We have Dr. Ethel Perry, who's with our psychology program. And finally, we have Dr. Janice Long, who's affiliated with our nursing program here at Walden. At this point, I am going to turn things over to our panelists to get the discussion started. Welcome, everyone. Thanks, Lita. I'm Lee Stoutlander. I'm the coordinator of faculty research training in ORDS. So let's introduce our panelists. Um, Leilani, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Leilani, and um, I live in uh, Oceanside, California, and I've worked at Walden for 20 plus years, and I've been in the role of IRB chair for about 17 years at Walden. Great. And Ethel? Hi, I'm Ethel Perry. I live actually in the area of outside of Houston, Texas, and I've been with Walden since 2018 and been in the role of chair since 2018. Very good. And Janice? Hi, I'm teaching the School of Nursing, College of Nursing now. And I've been with Walden since 2010 and worked with probably over 150 committees with about 40 of those being in chair position. So. Awesome. Thank you. So let's start with Leilani. Can you give us some statistics? on like time for recruitment? I mean, what are we talking about at Walden? Yes, uh, we actually just did a survey of alumni this past year and asked them, how long did it take you to attain your sample size? Because, you know, we have a lot of anecdotal evidence and stories, and we just kind of wanted to get some, you know, nice data. You know how we are. <laughs> and so we um, did a pretty full, we got about 200 responses. And um, this was from last year. So it, these responses may have been impacted still somewhat by the pandemic. So we're going to keep doing this surveying occasionally. And we found that the average was about six weeks to in the recruitment phase to get their sample size. Um, about 30% of students got their uh, recruitment done in one to three weeks. And by the way, we took out, I'm not including students who did secondary analysis. This was only students who actually collected survey or interview data um, from participants. Um, about a third of them got it done in one to three weeks. About a third of them got it done in four to seven weeks. 
And about a third of them took eight weeks. I'm sorry, about 20% took eight to 11 weeks and about another 20% took 12 weeks or more. And so we really want to delve in and find out, well, what's going on with these um, studies that are taking 12 weeks or more? Um, because most doctor students are not planning to take longer than uh, three months in the data collection. So I don't have any answers today. I, I think this is the beginning of a, a helpful conversation. And um, you know, we're gonna keep looking at this type of data as we go along. And also I wanted to mention, we asked these alums all, uh, a parallel question uh, or related question, which is, did you get more or fewer volunteers than you were expecting? And 58% said they got fewer than they expected which tells us that students often just were not having realistic expectations. And so when we asked them, okay, well, how many did you invite? How many did you get? The average response rate was about 25%. That was, there were very few students who got an over 50% response rate, meaning, you know, um, very few had more than 50 of the invited, 50% uh, of the invited people agree to volunteer and lots of folks got response rates of 10% or less. So that's really important to, to bear in mind. And so we'll be sharing this information uh, in the future at residencies and other settings to help set expectations. Which I mean, 25% is not bad if you're an experienced. Exactly. I would, I, I get 25% in my studies at Walden and elsewhere. So I thought, okay, let's, you know, keeping with the norm. Yeah. I think students are often really un unrealistic about what they should be expecting. Well, let's ask our panelists, how do you have students approach research recruitment as a chair? Well, I can start off just by saying what I do sure. in the nursing program. And that's starting off, first of all, in the prospectus stage, just starting to think about who you need, how many you're gonna need, uh, for the type of study you're going to do and for the research question that you're asking. So thinking very specifically of who they are and um, what, what um, and how many uh, that they really need. And when they're starting in the prospectus stage, then they're starting to think through all the steps of how to get to uh, that sample. And, you know, is it feasible? Is it, um, can you get a, a sample that's ethical, you know, that meets all those requirements? So that's my starting point, so. Mm -hmm. Ethel, how about you? I'm likewise, just as Janice mentioned, I like to open up the conversation early at the very beginning of the prospectus phase of where we talk about, you know, first is the realistic in regards to their recruitment plan. Second, you know, the feasibility, how they get the participants, especially if they're looking at, at a very vulnerable population, a difficult population to recruit, you know, what are their thoughts and what are their plans? And so we talk through that. And then uh, if they see that there's going to be any challenges, I often will guide them to speak with uh, IRB and to jump into one of those meetings, the weekly meetings, to talk with them to see if there are going to be any type of issues that they may uh, face. And so when you start this early, at least that gives the student time enough to say, well, can I shift it to where maybe I get the information from a different population that's similar to the research or the topic of interest that they're looking at? Very good. So everyone 
that's in the audience, if you wouldn't mind just giving us your issues that you see with students, do they have problems with particular settings or populations? And we will come back to that in a few moments. So our panelists, what problems do you see as a chair? And then we'll see what Leilani sees as from the IRB aspect. Well, one problem that I see is that students are unrealistic about how quickly they're gonna get the, the population or the sample and what they have to do to get it. Because sometimes you really have to work with an organization or you have to work with um, you know, social media. You have to have a plan for more than one source uh, to get that sample. And having thought that through, I don't know that all of the students really think about what kind of contingency problems or problems they're gonna have that they're gonna have to have a contingency plan for. So when they start and they start um, recruiting and don't see the responses that they want, then they want to immediately, they're, they probably fall into that 12-week group, you know, or somewhere the H-12-week group that they haven't anticipated what steps they need to take if they don't show up right away and, and or, or to be patient to wait for those next steps. And sometimes it's working with the local agencies for nursing. They're usually often recruiting nurses. So it may be in a hospital where they've got to meet with the directors or with uh, a nursing manager and have approval for people to participate. And are they asking them to do something while they're on the job? And sometimes that's uh, a problem or a barrier for um, nurses to have time to break away to conduct or to participate in, in a, for example, a qualitative study or break away to complete a survey that a nurse may be asking them to do. Um, so those are some of the barriers that can happen in a healthcare setting, at least in a hospital and clinic setting. Sure. That's all. I know one barrier that I actually have experienced with a student was in regards to the individual um, study of participants were actually inmates at a prison. And so in saying that, we started early on in the prospectus phase and talking about that. And you know, what was the feasibility? Can we possibly get um, data from another set of population versus the inmates themselves, maybe in the community? But because they were set on that and they actually had been talking with the prison and everything else, they went forward to the proposal phase. However, when they got the data collection, or we got to the IRB phase, that is where a lot of time was spent because of the fact that, you know, they did not only did they do form A through D, but they also, uh, with the prison itself, they had to go through that IRB process. And so that was a lengthy time. And so when you add up the time period of the months, it almost came out to a year and six months before the person actually got started with the data collection. And at that time, uh, when the data collection did start, the prison kind of shifted and changed. And they stated, you cannot see the people now face to face. And so they had to shift to doing the data, collecting the data through mail. And so once again, 
when that changed, you got to go back to IRB, do a request for change and all that and everything else. So that was the hiccups with that. And that's quite challenging. So I like to guide people. It's like, this is the barriers that you could face. However, can we gather the information in a different way, maybe from the parole officers, probation officers? How can we do that? And some of the problems that um, you can encounter also, as you're mentioning, location is an issue. We talked about temp, uh, time is an issue, but also events in the community or in the world, like we have with COVID or regional fires. Um, so if a student hasn't thought through or, or investigated what's going on around the world or around that location where they're reaching out for a population, they may have some surprises. Um, from the standpoint of that region or that location or politics of the re of the, the healthcare system, changing uh, demographics, changing um, organizational structures that can influence it. So it's a good idea for the students to really have thought through that or, or at least investigated to see what's going on in the region because that can certainly uh, influence and, and create um, a barrier and a challenge. And that is true. If I could add, I had a student from Canada. Actually, she was doing her research with the indigenous population. And so although she was part of the in-group, when she moved to another part of Canada, she was informed by an organization that she could not do research there, yeah. gather data, unless they, she goes through that organization, pay a fee, and get approval. And that part she did not know. And so that was new. And so it stopped right there for the data. Wow, lots of issues. Leilani, how about from the IRB side? Yeah, um, you know, I think someone mentioned earlier uh, in the chat that students often have a lot of confidence because they have an affiliation to some organization and they just make an assumption, oh, yeah. They've got my back. I'm just going to either go to where I work or where I used to work and it's going to be great. They all love me there. It's not that simple. It, you know, sometimes you talk to one leader and that one leader is, you know, really interested in your study and you're reading the, the student reads the signals as, oh, this is going to be a breeze. But unfortunately, especially if you're talking about a university setting or a hospital setting or a military unit, just because one person is nodding their head and acting interested in your study does not mean it's gonna be a breeze because each of those types of organization has multiple layers of approvals, particularly, I'll note the ones that stand out to me as having a lot of hoops to jump through, military, for good reason, because there's some history of, of, of military um, personnel being um, used in studies inappropriately going back many decades. So for good reason, they're very protective of their population, including military families, especially veterans, the VA. I would say the VA is probably the most difficult site to use as a partner organization, but a solution is to go through other veteran organizations like VFWs and more um, you know, support organizations, nonprofits, and social media veteran groups, going through the VA is virtually impossible, even if you work at the VA. They do research, but they, they do their internal research. They're not, it's not doors wide open for doctoral students. So um, I think um, 
the military, the VA, and other universities tend to have the most, and, and other hospitals tend to have the most layers. They often have their own IRBs, and it's fine. We have no problem working with the deferral. That's, that's not the problem. It's just that they also, in addition to having that, they often have a union or HR or um, attorneys, like in-house legal departments that have to sign off. And anytime you want to survey or interview staff at on-site, especially in a hospital setting, and, oh, you wanna talk about medication errors? Yeah, you know, the legal department's not thrilled about that. So um, honestly, I would, any of your students who have a kind of a, a game plan A to work with an organization, you know, be supportive and encouraging, but encourage them to have a backup plan, a plan B and a plan C, because sometimes those organizations that they think are a sure thing don't work out. Sometimes, you know, leadership changes and the new leaders just like, I don't know about that. That sounds like, some, you know, maybe in a year or two, ask me in a year or two, you know, student doctoral students don't want to hear that. So um, please encourage them to have a plan B and a plan C. And one of those alternate plans should not involve a partner organization. So maybe using their professional network, using LinkedIn, um, snowball sampling, which is essentially using your professional network and asking you know, people in your professional network to share the invitation with others they know. And as long as they're not sharing it with their subordinates, IRB is going to be fine with that. Um, anything is fair game in social media. And, and LinkedIn, believe it or not, counts as social media. And so, um, Th those alternate plans, um, when anytime, you know, when I was noting those figures where students were taking 12 weeks or more, at that point, they are usually are circling back to the IRB office hours that Dr. Perry mentioned earlier, which by the way, are every weekday, you don't need an appointment, it's group advising, students can chat, brainstorm, they can just come and listen to other students, ask their questions, and, um, or, you know, or I would say at about the eight or nine week mark is when a lot of them start to feel a little bit like, uh-oh. I better switch something up because this is not going as planned, especially if they've only had one or two volunteers at that point. And so um, even though this isn't the IRB's tasking per se to, to tell people how to find participants, we often find ourselves in dialogue with students. Have you tried this? Have you considered that? And, um, you know, there's also uh, one backup plan that, you know, I wish none of us had to resort to is to pay a service to find us participants. They're out there. I'm not going to recommend one particular one over another. I find the pricing varies wildly. You can go into Google and they're called um, survey panels, usually for surveys, um, for interviews. Um, you can just type, you know, find research participants into Google and they'll, many of them will pop up. And the prices range from $2 per participant, kind of like a finder's fee. I've even seen rates as high as 30 something dollars per participant, which, you know, that's not ideal. But um, in that case, it was someone needing people with very, very specific um, inclusion criteria that honestly were very hard to find. And so that's, that's a service that's out there um, for students who are, uh, for whatever reason, they don't want to try the other things or they've already exhausted all the other options. Yeah. Yeah, and the more narrow of a participant that you're looking for, I mean, the price can be really high on those. I, I know I've tried it myself and it can be really, and they may only have one or two people in their database that 
fit that with those criteria that you're looking for too. Oh, I wanted to mention one of the things that Darcy mentioned in the chat, which is gift cards. Oh, thank you. And yeah, sometimes um, students get the impression that gift cards or thank you gifts are not allowed or paying the participants is not allowed. The only thing I would say is not allowed, there are two things, giving people cash, not a great idea. It should be something more traceable and documentable. Um, and lotteries are at this time not permitted. It, that may change in the future, especially if we set up kind of a, a system that is legitimate and not just a, um, it, you know, we're not trying to play a game here. This is research. This is serious. Um, so I'm not ruling it out for the future. Um, under Ad Talon, we may be able to find a way to make that work. Um, you know, with our legal uh, legal uh, structure. Um, but yeah, gift cards are encouraged. And when students ask how much, especially international settings, it's difficult to figure out, well, how much is a reasonable amount? Um, and, you know, would, you know, $100, is that a, 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 a coercive amount? Um, and it depends on the population. You know, if we're talking about homeless individuals, unsheltered individuals, $100 to talk about something, you know, very, like to talk about past trauma, that might be an offer a, a, an unsheltered person feels that they couldn't pass up. So yeah, that might be a coercive amount. Um, for executives, that might be just a, an acknowledgement of thank you for your valuable time. I, I think 100 is about the most we've ever approved. And that was just because the student came up with it. They said, I don't think um, I, I think that it's an insult to offer them anything less. Um, and so, but the typical amount is about $20, a $20 Visa, Amazon card, Walmart, something like that, that most people can use. I don't recommend food um, gift cards just because, you know, not everyone likes Starbucks, but if, if you know your population and you know Starbucks gift card is going to be a hit by all means, it's, it's your study. Um, so we, we encourage researchers um, to think about what is the amount of a nice meal if they're in an international setting, you know, that can vary um, a nice meal for one person. So $20 is kind of where we land on that one as a recommendation. Do many students use gift cards or give some kind of incentive? I would say for interviews, a majority do. Maybe even as high as 75%. And it's typically uh, 10 to $20. Um, a gift card for surveys, the, it's pretty rare uh, because we're talking larger sample sizes usually. I think it's a little more common with surveys. Um, it's, it's not uh, maybe 10% will say something like for every volunteer I get, I'll you know, donate $2 to some organization that's related to the study topic. It's, it's a gesture of, of um, thank you. And, um, you know, there also have been folks who will do a donation and, and let the, per the, the participant choose the charity. Um, so that, you know, that's just a, an alternate way so that maybe you're offering them a smaller amount, like, you know, under $10, but rather than giving it to them, you're, you're giving it to the charity. So we've talked about a number of settings and populations that are problems. Are there other ones that people have seen that we should mention and maybe a solution for recruitment in those settings?
Um, I can offer um, one common pattern that I see is that a lot of students start out because we do tell them in residencies, you know, make your research question specific. And a lot of students take that to mean because maybe they've seen it in some studies, they take that to mean, oh, I need to pick a very specific geographical location. And, you know, because this is the city I know, or this is the state I know. And it's very, the most common type of change request we see at IRB is to broaden the geographical parameters of the study. So maybe initially we're gonna look at just their city and then they decide, I really need to go statewide to get this done. And also why, no, they're kind of like, why didn't I go statewide just to begin with? I didn't have a, a great reason for focusing on just my city. Um, I find that in education and public policy, it often makes sense to do something at um, the state level, let's say, because most, not, well, a lot of policies are set at the state level. Um, if I would just recommend if the issue is not unique to that town or county, then why make it that narrow? That, that just from a pragmatic perspective, it makes it really difficult to get participants. We've also had students go um, from a state level to a, a regional level or even national level, and in some cases, international level if they're using social media, and that's been really successful. And then, um, you know, the student has to occasionally reframe part of their proposal and address that uh, new geographical um, scope. Um, in other cases, they might just broaden the scope in other ways. Like I think I was talking to a woman who um, was looking at parents, I think mothers of children with a specific disorder and decided to broaden it to parents, you know, not just mothers, parents and broaden the, um, the types of disorders that, you know, that she initially wanted to focus on because she realized, well, I actually talked to one parent and, you know, there were some related issues um, and, and, and that, you know, it, it made sense to include, um, to, to broaden those inclusion criteria. Morris. One thing, oh, excuse no, me. You go. I was just gonna mention that when there is so much difficulty finding a sample, if the topic is something that can be explored in data that's already been collected, then it's a great idea to go to some uh, secondary data sources. And HRSA, NIH, CDC, and several of the national organizations, when you write a grant to them, you have to plan for how you're gonna disseminate that information and how you're gonna disseminate that data, how that data is gonna be made available to others. And so there's, multiple data sources that only a few researchers for NIH or CDC have already investigated. And yet there's all of these wonderful variables and data. For example, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey is an annual ongoing survey that's being conducted by scientists and researchers who are very competent in collecting data. So it's a very rigorously collected sample and great for students to analyze and go in and use these fresh ideas and fresh minds to think through some of those variables and how else can we look at that? So I would always say consider secondary sources if you're struggling with your sample. That's a great suggestion. I just thought of another one um, along those lines that um, in some cases the student tries for months or uh, you know however long trying to trying to locate uh, members of a very uh, marginalized population, maybe that's known to not be trust 
academia or trust um, professional, you know, um, talking about a certain issue. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly of certain mental health issues or certain um, victims, people have been victimized in certain ways, um, aren't exactly chomping at the bit to go talking to professionals about it sometimes. And in those cases, sometimes the student and the committee came up with a plan to broaden the study. Maybe they got one or two volunteers who were in that victim group or in that um, patient group, but then they supplemented the data by um, also interviewing professionals who work with that population, which is really valuable because those professionals have seen multiple individuals and can help identify some of the patterns. And so it's, it's a different type of study, of course, but it's a way to, to get it done <laughs> in a reasonable amount of time and to get some really good data. Great ideas. We've had a couple questions about helping students to avoid fraudulent participants. So like people going multiple times into a survey or lying to be in an interview. Any suggestions from anybody for those? I, mean, I have one suggestion is that um, recently I had uh, one of my uh, doctoral candidates actually had an interview and the person was supposed to be from the Caribbean islands and she actually picked up that it, it was someone who was fraudulent. And so she continued with the interview. And then after that, we actually met to talk about it. And as we went through it and everything, we could tell that the person was fraudulent. And so we talked about some different strategies and ways of how to do this to make sure that they fully met the inclusion criteria. Uh, and so, you know, because if you look for a specific individual, and what, what was the giveaway is that the person did not know the resources there within the Virgin Islands. And so that was the giveaway. And because the, because the researcher or the student is from the Virgin Islands, she knew right then and there that this wasn't someone that was truly a participant that she was looking for. But to be able to talk that with your committee and to go over the interview and the responses, I think that was a good strategy that we used. And we could, we could definitely tell that no, this wasn't someone that was true. And that happens though, it's sad. It's sad that it does happen, but it does occur. Yeah. I think that is a recommendation now for us to, at some, some member of the committee, the methodologist or the chair, to look at the data, to examine it, to determine. And I've had questions before and we've done it up and had it evaluated by the other folks, the awards department and the IRB looked at it for us. So there's a lot of support for when you check the data, if you have questions. Yeah, it's not that common, thankfully, but like Dr. Perry said, it's it's been going on since, you know, the olden days when you used to advertise on, um, you know, electric poles or whatever for studies and people would volunteer twice because they viewed it as a way to make money. And so I think um, in social media, it's a little easier or some people might post it, it's happened just to, honestly in the past 17 years I can only think of a handful of times it's happened but in one case a student survey where she was going to pay the part each participant um, somebody must have posted it in some very large form hey you can make ten dollars and she was able to tell from the responses which ones were fraudulent thankfully and just 
you know, we told her she's not obligated to pay that um, for fraudulent responses, but it's pretty easy on a survey. Um, It's very easy on a survey platform to indicate that you would only accept um, one response from each IP address. I'm not actually sure how it works when people are using a VPN, um, but you you can build some things in um, to um, interviews, like you know, Dr. Perry was saying, if in the warm-up or the you know you're just confirming demographics, for example, um, it's if the person doesn't seem to meet the inclusion criteria, that should become pretty apparent. Or it, you know, if they're trying to make up answers. Um, it's, it's all right to stop the interview and just thank them for, for their time and just not continue. Um, but it is pretty rare. I would say it's more often for people to be genuinely confused about your flyer and not understand what the inclusion criteria are. So I don't think it's always malicious. But then, um, you know, some of the students who were advertising, you know, on social media, I think those were the ones that, that came up the most often because it would get reposted. And so they should just... Um, you know, set up a couple screening questions in the beginning, not like, you know, let me see your ID <laughs> necessarily. Um, some of our students have proposed that, but just to um, uh, confirm and, and maybe get a little more detail about those inclusion criteria as, you know, just to um, to make sure it all checks out. And, and um, occasionally uh, when students, we do encourage students to use, you know, they can use Zoom, if not in person, they can use a phone call, but maybe be suspicious if someone is just refusing to use the camera. Some of the situations where people have uh, volunteered multiple times for an interview study and they thought this voice sounds familiar and they wouldn't be on camera. Um, you know, it, there are reasons, legitimate reasons why people might not want to be on camera, but um, you know, it, it's just something to, uh, they, they should, kind of use common sense and then just end the interview if it seems to not be checking out. A recent issue that I had in a survey was Autobots, where they would go in and within the space of 20 minutes, you have 500 responses that are all random. And it just totally messes up your survey. Um, If you run into that with other people and... What do you suggest? I don't think, I remember when that happened to you. I don't, thankfully, I don't think it's been that common. And now with AI, makes you wonder um, if, I, I always wonder like, what do, what do they have to gain by doing this? Yeah. Um, and so um, I think maybe what has happened is some of the survey platforms themselves have found ways of, um, you know, keeping the, the Autobots out, but um, that marking that, that you would only take one response from each IP address, I think should help with that. Mm-hmm. I think I also put in things where they had to prove they were a human mm-hmm. you know, and that seemed to Captcha. help. Recapture, yeah, prove you're not a robot. Yeah. Um, Nicole asked in the chat, how will they find the IP address? So in every um, survey platform, there's a setting that is something like track IP addresses or uh, don't track them. And so it's just a matter of of saying, yes, track them. We don't need to record them. We don't necessarily need to know what they are, but usually it says something like allow only one response from each IP address. 
and, and the technology may very well change as time goes on and maybe gets better at preventing fraudulent responses. We have just a couple minutes. Would anyone in the audience like to ask a question? If you wanna raise your hand, um, we can let you talk. The code for this podcast is ECHO716. We have Nicole. Hi, everybody. Thank you. This has been so informative. I thought I knew quite a bit of sampling, but my goodness, uh, definitely expanded my knowledge. Um, I just wanted to go back to the IRB, and I actually uh, experienced this when I was doing my own research. So we have IRB from the school, but you're also saying, depending on the organization, they may actually need to go through IRB in that organization, correct? Yes. And in Hospitals, universities, military organizations, um, those are the ones. And some government agencies, it depends on the country, um, they sometimes have their own ethics board or ethics committee. Sometimes it's not even called an IRB, but we have a very smooth procedure for working with those. Either one can go first. We defer to them as needed, um, or if they defer to us, we have you know standard documentation to allow them to defer to us if they prefer. Basically, we'll do whatever the partner site IRB wants <laughs> so that it's it's not a problem. But the and student has to keep in mind that it takes some extra time. They have to allow some extra time for that. Yeah, and one thing that we probably didn't mention early on, and um, Lalani had a lot of experience with this, is I was on a committee where the student was using multiple universities and it was oh. very complex and a very difficult process and lengthy process for getting through the uh, approval process. Yes, and when there are multiple sites, um, each site might have a different position on whether they wanna to defer to the Walden IRB or, then have their, or have their own IRB be the IRB of record. So if possible, um, I would say if a student is gonna use multiple sites, then maybe just encourage them to do a, a less formal recruitment approach. So for example, if I wanted to survey um, faculty at five different, that's not a good example, um, <laughs> let's, let's say nurses. If I wanted to um, interview nurses at five different hospitals, let's say, um, rather than doing a very official thing where I go on site and I officially recruit on site at each hospital have to work with each of those IRBs, I would say, why not just use LinkedIn or social media or snowball sampling through your professional network and just bypass the organizations? Because if you're gonna, if the goal is just to get a diverse representation of people from different work settings, you don't even need to go through the organizations. You're just making your life more difficult by doing it in the, through the official channels. Um, and so I know that might sound a little bit backdoor, but it's, it's, it's fine. And that's, you know, that's why social uh, professional networking exists, honestly, is that so people have these networks independent of um, the organization. And so things like, like LinkedIn and, um, you know, people, uh, lots of students have said, you know, I still keep in touch with the alums that I went to grad school with or undergrad training with. And, you know, that's a, a great pool for um, doing snowball sampling. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, thank you to our panelists. You guys were awesome. And I know we've brought up 
ideas that people have not even thought about before with their students. So thank you so much for all of your insights and experience. And thanks to our audience for all of the great questions and comments that you had. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. This podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services. Our music was by Excel Music Publishing, licensed under Creative Commons.